This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. The remainder of this week, we bring you four messages former MBI president Paul Nyquist delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 to 2014. Paul Nyquist is a pastor, author, former president of the Moody Bible Institute, and currently dean of graduate programs and professor at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Now, here is Paul Nyquist on Today in the Word radio. Our theme this year is a good one. The hope within us. But the reason why that theme is so relevant to us is not good. Because if you're a Bible-believing Christian today, you know hostile happens. Hostile happens. You face anger. You face aggression, you face persecution, you face hostility, all because you're out of step with society. Now, our personal divergence from the values of society can happen one of two ways. One way it can happen is because society changes. That is, you used to be in agreement with the values of society, but then it changed. And you can't prevent that from happening. Culture is not static. Society always changes. But it does mean that you can wake up one morning and realize you're the odd wad. That you can no longer support the values of your culture. That you have some biblical, philosophical, fundamental problems with some of the things that your society promotes and protects. So one way you can find yourself out of step with society is because it's changed. That you used to be in agreement with it, but now you no longer are. But another way you can get out of step with society is because you've changed. That is, you used to be in agreement with society as an unbeliever, but then Jesus got a hold of you. And His Spirit came to live within you. And His Word came alive to you. And suddenly you wake up one morning and you realize you've changed. That you don't think the way you used to think. You don't act the way you used to act. You don't value what you used to value. And some of the things that didn't bother you before bother you a lot. 
So another way you can be out of step with society is because you've changed. But either way, or perhaps out of even a combination of them both, you can realize you are not in step with society. And when that is true, hostile happens. Because culture has a way of punishing those who do not follow along with the herd. They ostracize them. They marginalize them. They attack them. They slander them. If you do not mimic the culture, you will face hostility. I think of Tim Tebow. NFL quarterbacks are supposed to fit a certain mold. Glory hogs, glamorous. You know, they're the ones who are the pretty boys in a tough sport. Tim Tebow doesn't fit that culture. He's humble. He's very quick to deflect praise to his teammates. He has a practice of Tebowing, which means... He bows in prayer after every game to give thanks to God. He is wildly out of step with the culture. And as a result, he has faced hostility. He has suffered some of the most vicious criticism I have ever seen. And this is in spite of the fact that he led his team, the Denver Broncos, to a very improbable first-round victory in the NFL playoffs. So, friends, this is the lay of the land. This is reality. If you're a Bible-believing Christian today, hostile happens. So what should be our response to that? How should we face hostility? How would God have us live in an increasingly antagonistic culture? Let me share with you, this is not merely an academic exercise. This is intensely practical. Because all around this world, there are believers in Jesus Christ who are facing hostility because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I have had the chance to meet so many of these dear saints. But it's also true here in the United States. I lead a school. And based upon current trends, I foresee a day when the government will force us to condone same-sex marriages and embrace homosexuality or lose our tax-exempt status or lose our regional accreditation from our accrediting agencies. I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's only a matter of when. So how do we face hostility? How would God have us live in an increasingly antagonistic world? Well, fortunately, we're not the first ones to have to navigate down this difficult path. And so to instruct us and to encourage us, God has placed within his word the book of 1 Peter. You probably know the background to this book. It was written around 63 A.D. Believers had already been dispersed throughout Asia Minor because of the persecution that had been launched in Jerusalem. 
But Peter knows they haven't seen anything yet. Because Nero is on the throne. And within just a few months, this deranged ruler would launch a bloody assault on the church. And when he does, Christians will be viewed as enemies of the state and they will suffer horrific torture. So knowing that, Peter takes up his pen to write. And he addresses this theme several times within the book. But tonight we're just going to zero in on five verses in the middle of chapter 3. Because here Peter explains to us how to face hostility. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking tonight at verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter in the third chapter, beginning in verse 13. Now this passage breaks down into two parts. In the first part, which is verse 13, and in the first part of verse 14, Peter gives us the reality of hostility. That is, here he explains to us that this should not be unexpected. But then he follows that up in the second part, which is the last part of verse 14 all the way through verse 17, by giving us our response to hostility. And here he's going to give us not one, not two, but three different ways in which we are to respond to this hostile world. So that's the general outline. First, he gives us the reality of hostility. Then he gives us our response to hostility. So let's begin by reading these verses together. We'll start in verse 13, and I'm reading tonight from the New American Standard Version. Peter writes, And who is there? to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. And even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, Peter begins in this passage in verse 13 by asking a rhetorical question. He asks there, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the unstated answer to that question is, no one. No one should harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. Because if you're doing what is good, everyone should recognize that it is good and not harm you. For instance, the government shouldn't harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. That's not their God design. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. If you look back at chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Peter made that clear. He said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to one in authority or to governors as sent by him. It says, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
And here he just echoes what Paul wrote in Romans 13. Government has been instituted by God to punish evildoers and to praise those who do right. And so if you're zealous for what is good, government shouldn't harm you. They should applaud you. And neither should those around you. Neither should anyone else harm you. Why not? Because God has placed a moral code within each one of us. That is, instinctively, intuitively, we know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. You give to the poor, that's good. You rob the poor, that's wrong. And all mankind gets that because our Creator has placed that within us. And so if you're zealous for what is good, if you're enthusiastic about that, if that is what marks your life, then in an ideal world, no one should cause you harm. Because you're doing what is right and what is good and what is proper. Unfortunately, in a fallen world, it doesn't always work like that. In an ideal world, no one should harm you for doing good. But in a fallen world, you can suffer for the sake of righteousness. And that's what he implies in verse 14 when he writes, And even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And here, the English translations do not fully reflect the rare verbal form that Peter seeks to use here. The Greek language is amazingly flexible in its ability to express different kinds of conditional statements. Here Peter chooses the most rare of all those forms when he says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. And what he's saying here is it shouldn't happen. You shouldn't be harmed for doing good. But it can. But even if, perchance, for some reason, you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. In other words, he's saying, this is reality, and you shouldn't be surprised by it. And he makes it even more clear in chapter 4 and verse 12 when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised at this. This is reality. That is, if you're zealous for good, hostile happens. Why? Because good reveals wrong. Righteousness reveals unrighteousness. And those who are doing wrong don't want to be discovered. Those who are doing evil don't want to be unmasked. And so they will then attack the good doer. And they'll seek to reframe what is being done so it can look like those who are doing good are actually doing evil. For instance, a statement against abortion can be recast to maybe imply that we're seeking to rob women of their reproductive rights. A statement against homosexuality can be recast to be hate speech. And so the one who does good 
is attacked. So this is the reality today. God wants us, as his children, to be zealous for what is good. That's what he desires. But we need to accept the reality that those who are zealous for good, when you are zealous, hostile happens. Now, here's the problem with this. We don't tend to do hostile well. That is, when someone attacks us, we can get angry, we can get defensive, we can lash back, or we can get timid and we can withdraw because we don't want to go through that again. You know, we all have a default mechanism that we use when we're attacked. What's yours? So it's obvious we need some help in this area. And fortunately, Peter provides it for us. And in the remainder of our passage, he gives us three ways that we are to respond to a hostile world. Three ways. So how do we face hostility? How? Peter says, okay, here's how. First, he says, be strong. Be strong. Don't be afraid of them, but remember who your Lord is. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Peter says, don't be afraid of them. He says, don't fear their fear, literally. And he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 8. He says, don't fear their fear, and don't get all agitated about this. Don't get all worked up about it. Don't let them intimidate you. Now, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, and if you go back into the context there, you'll find out why. King Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, was facing a national crisis. The northern kingdom of Israel had aligned themselves with the Syrians, and they were going to come do battle against Ahaz, and Ahaz was going to get crushed. And so in his fear of them, he then rushed into an alliance with his arch enemy, the Assyrians. That's like letting the fox into the hen house. Well, when, Ah when Isaiah heard about this, he comes to Ahaz and he says to him, don't be afraid of them. Don't fear their fear, but remember Yahweh your God and how he can deliver you. Well, Peter says the same thing to us. He says, when people are hostile, when you face hostility, Don't be afraid of them. Don't fear their fear. But remember who is the sovereign Lord. He says in verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And the word sanctify is translated different ways in different versions. The ESV, I think, has this as honor Christ. The New American Standard is sanctify Christ. The word here is hagiatso which means to set apart or to separate something for a special use. For instance, my neighbor down in Kansas City, before we moved up here to Chicago, had a vehicle that he used for common, ordinary, everyday use. It was a 10-year-old Toyota truck that he kept parked on his driveway. But in his garage... 
he had another vehicle. There in his garage under a tarp was a beautifully restored 1967 red Corvette convertible. And on rare occasions, on those special occasions, like a beautiful Sunday afternoon, he would pull open that garage door, take off the tarp, put in the key, bring those 450 horses to life with a roar. And he'd take that beautiful car on a spin through the neighborhood. And then he'd bring it back, put it in the garage, put it on the tarp over it for the next special use. He had sanctified that car. (laughs) He had set it apart for a special use. It was not for common, ordinary use. That was his truck. No, this was a car that had been sanctified. It had been set apart for a special use. And that's what we're supposed to do with Christ. We're to set him apart. We're to sanctify him. We remember who is our Lord? Who is the one sovereign? They aren't the ones who are judge and jury over us. Our Lord is. So we remember who is the Lord and sanctify him. Now you can see that this first guideline here affects our emotions. Because when we're attacked... The normal reaction is to get afraid, to get fearful, and wonder, am I going to get hurt? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my friends? Am I going to lose my freedom? And we can get afraid. That's normal. That's natural. But God here reassures us. He says, first of all, you're not the first person to go through this. Isaiah and all them, and since then, many, many more. So remember who is the Lord. Remember who is the sovereign one. Don't be afraid of them. But put your trust in Christ, and he will take care of you. So that's his first guideline to us. As we think about how we are to face hostility, First Peter says, be strong. Don't be afraid of them. Now, the second guideline follows right after that. And what Peter says to us secondly is, be ready. First he said, be strong. Now he says, secondly, be ready. Be ready to give an answer to anyone who might ask. Look at the middle of verse 15. It says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, the question here is, what context is Peter talking about when he says we are to make a defense? The word defense is the word apologia, from where you get the word apology or the practice of apologetics. It's a word that can refer to the formal defense that someone would make in a legal courtroom. I think that's included here, but Peter is making it much broader than that. And I think he's including not formal, but also informal settings as well. So this can happen on the street, in the supermarket, in Starbucks. It can happen when your friend, your neighbor, a stranger, a co-worker come up to you. Anyone who might ask you. Notice the all-inclusive terms that Peter uses in this verse. He says, always be ready. 
always be ready to everyone who might ask. See, here's his point. You won't have to initiate this. You won't have to bring it up. They'll bring it up either because they're curious or furious. They'll come up to you and they'll say, why do you do what you do? How do you do that? I've been watching, I've been studying, I can't figure it out. Why, why do you do what you do? Why? And Peter says, whenever, wherever, whoever might ask. He says, be ready. Be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. And that word hope is one of Peter's favorite words that occurs four times in this epistle. It can refer to the blessed hope that we all have as we await the return of Christ. But I think in this context, the word hope is nearly synonymous with faith. So what Peter is saying is, be ready to give an explanation of your faith. That is, be ready to give a clear cogent explanation of the beliefs that cause you to be zealous for what is good. In other words, when they accost you, when they assault you, don't clam up. Don't go silent. Don't be quiet. Instead, be ready to give a clear cogent explanation of the hope that is in you. Now, let me ask you, Would you be able to do that? Would you? If Joe, your coworker, meets you at the water cooler and he says, you know, why do you do what you do? Why? Would you be able to give a clear explanation? And not lacing it with all the Christian jargon you learned in church? Such as, well, Joe, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been reconciled. I have been uh, uh, raised by the blood of the Lamb. Joe, my, my sin has been imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. I am now being progressively sanctified. Joe, would you like to get baptized? If you do that, he will look at you and say, You really are weird, aren't you? (laughs) You have to use words that they understand. You have to use terms that make sense to them. Leave the church words in church. This is taking Christianity to the streets. And it means you have to use terms that are relevant and understandable to them. Would you be able to do that? If not, get some training. Be ready to give an answer to anybody who might ask. Now, having said that, Peter waves a caution flag here. He says we're to be ready to give an answer. But he tells us we're supposed to give an answer in a certain way, in a certain manner. Like I said, we don't do hostile well. We can react, we get angry, we get aggressive, we can get self-righteous. That's not what God wants. We are to be his witnesses, not his prosecuting attorneys. And so he goes on to explain, we're to give an answer, but in a certain way. 
And he uses two terms to describe the manner here. At the end of verse 15, he says, Give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Give it an answer, but first he says, give it with gentleness. This is the word for meekness. Meekness means strength under control. So it means that when they attack you, you resist the urge to lash back. That you refuse to launch a counterattack. That you refuse to lob well-aimed missiles back at them. But rather, you respond to their question with humility and gentleness. Now you might say, I don't think anybody could do that. (laughs) Christ could. And Christ did. He did so as an example for us to follow as his children. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter wrote, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He did this as an example for us to follow in his steps. So therefore, while being reviled, we are not to revile. While being insulted, we are not to throw that back. But we're to respond with gentleness. Secondly, he also uses a second term to describe how we are to give an answer, not only with gentleness, but he also says, and reverence. You're to respond with gentleness and reverence. And I think the word here is respect. That we're to respond respectfully. And you might say, well, I can't respect that person. I mean, he's a deceptive, manipulative liar. He, he, all he does is use and abuse people. I can't respect him. Well, if you can't respect him for his actions, at least you can respect him for the image of God that is in him. At least you can respect him that this is a soul for whom Christ died. And so we are to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks, but we're to do so with gentleness and respect. And here's why this is so important. As I said before, you won't have to initiate this. They will bring it up. And they'll bring it up either because they're curious or they're furious. If they're furious, they're likely going to have a closed mind. They're going to be a closed heart. They probably aren't going to listen to anything you'd have to say. But if they're curious, then probably God's been working in them. And he's opened up their heart. And they're interested to find out, really, how do you do this? They're attracted to it. And so consequently, with that kind of openness, if you can respond to their questions with gentleness and respect, you can possibly then take that person and lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, that is the goal. The purpose is not to win an argument. The purpose is to win souls for Jesus Christ. So Peter's given us two ways in which we're to respond to hostility. First, he said, be strong. 
Don't be afraid of them. Secondly, he says, be ready. Always be ready. Now he gives us a third guideline, and that's found in verses 16 and 17. And what he says lastly to us is, be clean. That is, keep a good conscience so that if you do suffer, you know you're suffering for the right reasons. Look at verse 16. He says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. He says, keep a good conscience. Now, we all know that that conscience is that internal witness which alternatively either condemns us for what we have done wrong or confirms us in what we have done right. And we all know the weight and how heavy it is to carry around a guilty conscience when we've done something wrong. And that's why Peter says here, keep a good conscience. Keep a clean conscience. Keep a clear conscience so that when they attack you, you know you're innocent. Keep a good conscience so that when they attack you, you know you have done nothing wrong. And why is that important? Well, he tells why in the middle of that verse. He says, so that, here's the purpose, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Why are we to keep a good conscience? So that those who slander us, accuse us, will be found that they are not worthy and that they are put to shame. Now notice it doesn't say when they're going to be put to shame. I think all of us would naturally like that to happen in this life so that everybody knows I'm innocent and been vindicated and they are put to shame in this life. That sometimes happens. I mentioned before Tim Tebow and the firestorm that he has caused in the sports media. Well, after his team, the Denver Broncos, was eliminated from the NFL playoffs, I found a very interesting commentary in the Chicago Tribune by one of the sports writers, a Mr. George Diaz. The name of this commentary, the title is, An Empty Feeling with Tebow Out. Let me just read some excerpts. Tim Tebow, the righteous virgin who brought the topic of religion and sports to a mile-high crescendo, no longer overshadows the playoffs. He will be missed by millions who have no clue what a cover-two zone is. You may not either. <laughs> the fascination with Tebow has always been much more than X's and O's. Each of Tebow's games is a referendum on faith, with the haters and the atheists lining up on one side, squaring off against all who believe. I'll skip down. He says, Tebow is a young man of strong faith, which seems to be extremely troublesome for some. Perhaps it's because it forces us to look deeper at ourselves and wonder if there is an afterlife and whether our actions will deem us worthy of eternal salvation. 
Pick on Tebow all you want for his problems behind center as a quarterback. Yes, he stunk on Saturday. And I understand the divine power thing can be off-putting. Your way may not be his way. But he says millions embrace Tebow because he follows a path of goodwill and humility. If you want to rip him for that, I suspect lots of people will have his back. What is he saying there? He said, you may want to crucify Tebow, but it's not justified. Because he does what's good, not what's wrong. And I think all of us would like to have that kind of vindication in this present life. We'd like our opponents to be put to shame now. That may happen. But it may not. But if it doesn't happen in this present life, rest assured, it will happen in the afterlife. At the great white throne, the books will be opened. And everything that they have done will be exposed, including how they treated us. And they will be put to shame. But only, only if we've kept a good conscience. Friends, my purpose tonight has not been to depress you. It's been to encourage you. But I think we need to accept the reality that we're living in an increasingly hostile society. Culture is changing. It's becoming increasingly antagonistic to the things of God and especially to the moral standards of the Bible. Accept that. Expect that. And also know that the rate of hostility is accelerating. So that unless there is a spiritual revival that sweeps through this land, I think we can expect 10 years from now, it's going to be much more hostile than it is today. So how do we face hostility? How? Peter gives us three guidelines. He says, first, be strong. Be strong. Don't be afraid of them. Remember, who is your sovereign Lord? Secondly, he says, be ready. Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks, but with gentleness and respect. Third, he says, be clean. Be clean. Keep a good conscience so that you know if you suffer, that you're suffering for the right reasons. In short, what Peter is telling us is face hostility with hope. Face hostility with hope. If you're going to be engaged in this world, you will face hostility. How do you face it? With hope. A hope that gives you courage when you're attacked. A hope that gives you the answer when they question you. A hope that gives you confidence of vindication when they seek to shame you. You face hostility with hope. Hope is what God gives us to navigate through this difficult world because a lost world is a hopeless world. And they're attracted 
to hope. So maybe right now in your office, your boss is putting pressure on you to falsify some of the financial records. And he's telling you, you have to do this. Because otherwise, our division is not going to meet its quarterly projections. And you know, those numbers aren't right. They're not accurate. And you also know, if you participate in this, that you will violate your good conscience. But he's told you, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. And you know how important this job is to you. And you know how hard it is to find another job in this economy. Or or maybe you're a young adult and you have an unmarried brother. And he's coming to see you this summer. He's going to spend a few days at your house. And and you're excited to see him because you haven't seen him in a couple years. And he he calls you last week and, and he said, I'm coming and I'm bringing my girlfriend with me. And I want my girlfriend to be in the same room with me. And you explain to him that you're delighted that he's coming and you're very interested in meeting his girlfriend, but they can't stay in the same room. At first, he, he can't understand that. But then he gets angry. He finally slams down the phone. He says, if you're going to be so judgmental, I don't think I ever want to see you again in my life. Hostility. How do you face hostility? You face hostility with hope. You buffet your normal fears by reminding yourself who your Lord is. You answer their questions, but with gentleness and respect. And you make sure you keep a clean conscience so that if you do suffer, it's for the right reasons. You face hostility with hope. And friends, if you do that, if you do that, rest assured, someone somewhere is watching. They're observing you. They're watching your godly behavior. And the day will come when they'll sit down next to you in the lunchroom. Or they'll come up to you in a Starbucks. Or they'll pull you aside at a family gathering. And with hushed tones, they'll say, Why do you do what you do? Why are you so different? At that moment, friends, at that glorious moment, you will have the incredible privilege to explain to that lost soul the hope that is in you. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we possess. It's because of Christ. May we be ready to give a cogent, clear response to anybody who might ask of that hope that is in us. And may you be pleased to take some of those that we talk to, work in their hearts, let that gospel run deep into their hearts. May you be pleased to bring them to faith 
Thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages former MBI president Paul Nyquist delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 through 2014. Paul Nyquist is a pastor, author, former president of Moody Bible Institute, and currently dean of graduate programs and professor at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.